Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Namaste, Yoga Revealed Podcast. This is Alec Bashal Rubin coming back to you with another exciting episode. This will be sure to inspire and assist you in inquiring deep within. Just before we jump in, I have to tell you how incredibly elated I am that Andrew, myself, and my beloved partner, Annie D. Coyle, have come to you with our first ever live offering. It has been six years of creating these powerful interviews to assist you in your journey of yoga. And over 400,000 downloads and listeners across the globe, it is our deep honor to present to you the seven-day yoga reset. This is an opportunity to jump into a practice to reignite or maybe even establish yourself with a seven-day consistent flow to be able to also incorporate meditation and an eighth day of a bonus sunset meditation in beautiful Costa Rica. This is a pay what you can offering starting as low as literally $1 with a suggested offering of $7. And we know that during this wild time of inflation in the world, it can be tough to invest into expensive programs. So we wanted to bring something as a gift to you, our yoga revealed audience that can be what you can pay. So please do sign on in on Yoga Revealed's link in the bio or on Yoga Revealed's Instagram or yogarevealed.com. Click the seven-day yoga reset and tag Yoga Revealed on social media and you might be able to win some cool, amazing prizes. The seven-day yoga reset funnel, it is an opportunity also to pre-order the 100 days of yoga to truly transform your life through the lens of practice. And that will begin the end of this year or early 2023. For today's episode, I'm super excited to interview a longtime friend of mine and an amazing yoga teacher, Kali Durga. Kali has been on a unique journey and she prides herself on having a PhD in the art of stillness. So tune in and open your heart and enjoy this episode of the Yoga Revealed Podcast. Namaste, Yoga Revealed podcast family. So grateful to be here and present with you wherever you are on your journey, whether you're in the car, whether you're walking, whether you're on your mat. My name is Alec Michelle Rubin, and I'm just so grateful and honored to be bringing you another insightful episode and conversation that shares the wisdom of yoga, right? That's what we're all here for, to learn how to deepen the experience of what does it mean to be present and live life through the lens of yoga. And I'm so excited to be here with a real life friend and incredible teacher and human being that we've known each other for almost nine, 10 years now and lifetimes. (laughs) Kali, I'm so grateful that you're here with me in Colorado together in my brand new home. Thank you. Mm, it's a blessing to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be connected. I remember seeing you when we were both beginning through 
just the yoga journeys. I think I really started to see who you were at Envision, mm. Envision Music Festival, right? When you, you, you've taught there, mm-hmm. you've been there. And so mm-hmm. I know you've got the, the Pura Vida lifestyle and vibrancy that just fills up your life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, definitely transitional era, I think, for both of us. It was beautiful <laughs> to see from a distance each other's evolution and mm. being support. I actually have a a memory that just came up of uh, being at a Rise Festival, <laughs> and you were supporting a class, and you came in and um, in the middle of a chaturanga told me to keep my shoulders in line with the elbows that's a cue i was grateful for so early on so um to have to have witnessed you and your growth and Mm. then to continue re-meeting one another is wow a gift yes indeed (laughs) i love it i love how the journey weaves in and out together and here we are so well one of the first questions that we always love to ask is how did yoga first reveal itself to you Mm. in this lifetime take us back Okay. So it actually, I think as it, as it usually does, the wisdom teachings seep in through ancestral lineages. Mm -hmm. And so the, the inquiry for a long time, and I've been asked this question so often, and the inquiry often stopped at, at me in, in my own path. And when I was first exposed to uh, embodied teachings. But I've been digging a little bit and also remembering some childhood memories that have just kind of seeped through recently. And one major influence was my grandfather, who Mm. I actually never met, um, but was it was my mother's father. And he was stationed in Cairo for two years during World War II. And uh, he brought a book with him those two years he was gone. It was a little turquoise, tiny book, um, Swami Shivananda. It was entitled Sadhana. Mm. And it was a book he apparently had with him in the trenches and trained with his friends there about how to practice meditation in the midst of hypervigilance, never knowing when they were going to get attacked. And so this little bite-sized book was like a, a some pocket wisdom for them to sustain some, you know, some unimaginable fear and wow. tension. And my mom says that when he did come back, you know, they say uh, the the phrase at that point wasn't wasn't so trauma informed, but they they were shell shocked, and so the practices that they brought back home from that time was was really really entrenched, thankfully. And so my mom says every morning, um, her father would sit at the foot of his bed um, on a towel, no yoga mats yet, but a towel, mm-hmm. and uh, he would do you know simple stretching and 10 minutes or so of a body scan meditation and that that was something he carried with him lifelong. So I didn't have the direct transmission from him, but I did uncover that book in my basement as a little girl. And I remember uh, pulling it out of kind of deep corner of the bookshelf. And at that age, already feeling so drawn to the types of languaging and uh, conceptual spiritual theory that wasn't really alive or awake in me or in my direct family structure at that time. So it wasn't, uh, it was years until I actually got onto a map, but the, the kind of dwelling of wonder and the mystery of the words and the postures that were in that book. I, I did carry that, I think, and it ripened years later. Wow. Such a visual journey, mm. you know. I mean, we've all seen movies of uh, World War One, Two, and being in the trenches. Most people have, at least. And, like, 
sometimes you'd think like, well, someone has a little pocketbook. Usually at that time, it's like probably the Bible. You know, <laughs> it's like some people got the Bible and Grandpa Kali's got the Sadhana book teaching his his peers how to maintain some level of peace through absolute chaos and, and imminent war and quite literally shell shock occurring. And wow, what an incredible story. Do you still have the book? I <laughs> and has it been laminated? Like, oh my God. So yeah. My, my sister actually moved to Jerusalem, another kind of avenue of of um spirit seeker. She is and she uh she got a hold of my mom's bookcase before I did. <laughs> It's in the family, though. It's in the family. Still there. I Still would there. love to see some photographs yes. of that book. Oh, my goodness. I mean, seriously, that is, I've never heard a story like that. Mm. That's so cool. That goes so back. You know, my, my family is Indian, and I have lineage of that. Like, I grabbed my Nana's Light on Yoga book, and it has no plates in it. There's no photos. It's mm. only writing. That's how old that Light on Yoga book yeah. is. Pretty cool. And that's like... Cool on a different level. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, like a war torn. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. Love. Deep, wow. Deep book. So the revealing of yoga to you was really through the ancestral embrace through practice, through lifetimes of practice. And in this lifetime, like how did like modern yoga, what did what is that approach in its revealing to you? How mm-hmm. how has that occurred? For you to be able to see the modern approach and then also touch into this ancestral line and to go where you have gone to bring you to where you are present. Mm. Love this inquiry also. Keep them coming. (laughs) They're coming. (laughs) Yes, I'm ready for them all. This, But this particular, this is an interesting intersection, uh, particularly for me in my practice, because I've always been very called to uh, principles of the Buddha Dharma. And that was, that was really the first avenue that I leaned into. So it wasn't, wasn't modern yoga at first, but it was again, and I think there's a, a theme for me in my practice life and in my teaching life, the language that's used. I was always so enraptured mm. by, uh, by the Buddha's prose. And just from a young age, uh, also stealing books from bookshelves and, and digging in where I probably wasn't supposed to, but felt like these phrases like the four noble truths and the wisdom of impermanence and these almost just heartbreaking terms that awakened or really stirred in me uh, a longing for a deeper way of speaking, a deeper way of moving, a deeper way of, of relating with others and also with my own suffering, which um, I had some form of anxiety or depression or just a deeper yearning for more from a young age. And I, I really felt like the, the Buddhist language was the only format that I felt met by. Mm. So that was the the first avenue that I I started strolling down, and then in college, CU Boulder, <laughs> uh, was introduced to some of that kind of modern format of asana. And a lot of people talk about you know that first moment of stepping into the yoga studio and the light bulb goes off and there's a complete (laughs) transformation and your life is forever changed. And it was not that way for me (laughs) whatsoever. And there was something in me that felt like I should be here and I'm supposed to be doing this, but I didn't enjoy it. And I was, uh, I was (laughs) definitely dulled in in the sequence and in the postures it it wasn't an enrapturement to me (laughs) until I started realizing in the deeper held poses Mm -hmm. that I could start blending in some of the Buddhist psychology I had already baked into the bones Mm -hmm. and that's when yoga came alive but it was a lot of years of dragging myself to a mat and going through the motions knowing at some point this skeleton will 
align itself in a way that some deeper potent teachings will will come through and they did but it was it was more of that um long-term commitment and not the the enlightenment upon arrival i think there's something that you can speak to in that you know our society is so desired upon instant gratification <laughs> i want this now i want the handstand now i want that much money right now i want x y and z you fill in the blank I want enlightenment right now. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to a little more on the journey of, you know, what is, why, why is yoga this, this lifetime embrace rather than a, I'm going to practice for a week. I'm going to practice once a week for 10 years, or I'm just going to practice maybe a little bit every day mm-hmm. for the rest of my life in some way, shape or form. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's just so much instant gratification in this world in society. I mean, we live in one of the most fast-paced and toxic societies known to mankind humor in that statement too right (laughs) (laughs) and i like how you were seeing how at first you're like i'm gonna keep showing up even though i think you use the word i'm dulled i'm bored but i'm gonna keep showing up because did you see that there was something there was like something that was intangible that was kind of gripping you mm. a little bit yeah i think i think that there there was a knowing even from a young age that the bedrock of spiritual tradition and evolution is is discipline i think that was alive in me as an understanding from an early age. So the discipline of, of returning to the mat uh, at the end of the day, you know, after school or uh, after a long weekend or whatever it was, that, that the discipline of returning would definitely galvanize into some sort of result that would be beneficial. And I think also that the practice itself I witness today, you know, we talk about modern yoga, there's, there tends to be a emphasis on like what I like to call the bliss body and this feeling of expansion and enlightenment, or at least an enlightening away from the heavy burdens of of daily life. Mm. And that that becomes a really strong incentive for practitioners to come to the mat. But if that's all that we're seeking in the practice, then we won't really be cultivating the tools to deal with life when it does feel heavy or when there is boredom in the field or there's a source of discontent that makes sitting with this body distasteful or dissatisfactory. And that's where particularly the the yin teachings and here's my shameless plug for the slower practice is that we stay with whatever is occurring and there's no particular agenda to even create more spaciousness or more serenity but just actually to wake up to an interest of what's happening right now and a willingness to host it mm. and i think coming back every day to the mat irrespective of what you're bringing with you, there was something there for me that felt like a continuity in the chaos of life Mm. and that I would know how to meet myself even when there was a lot of inner turbulence. Mm. Mm. And even in that slowing down and coming home to self, you know, like one of my teachers, he started to say, it was the first time I ever heard it, to seek comfort in your discomfort, mm-hmm. to become still. And in that stillness, whatever arises, arises, you meet it. And typically in that meeting point, there might be a level of, a level of discomfort. <laughs> I think no matter how experienced one is, you know, life, life, I, I definitely chew the side of the pill that says, you know, life's pretty uncomfortable. There's a lot of beauty in life. I think life is ecstatic. And life is extremely uncomfortable sometimes. Yes. Very much so. Yes. <laughs> I chew on that piece yes. personally. And to seek comfort in the discomfort amongst everything that you're saying, that's how I relate to that. Mm. And this was really 
why I leaned in so heavily to the Buddhist teachings. It was the Buddha's revolutionary insight that our our level of contentment or satisfaction in life is not a measure of whether or not things are going right. Mm. That our say that again. Our level of contentment in life is not directly informed as the most major feature of our satisfaction by whether or not conditions are going quote unquote right for us. Mm. And that actually our source of stability Mm. is based on how we meet what's happening and not what is actually happening. So whether it's beautiful or bitter, that there's mm. a an inner space that we can still hold a level of interest for what's mm. occurring. And coming back to the mat every day really deepens that because if you practice long enough, you'll feel everything. Right. You'll feel it all. So to have a a procedure or a protocol to meet yourself with whatever's alive in you. I think that that's been the most crucial resource for me as I age and keep meeting a, yeah, a terrible and a beautiful world. Wow. I love it. And so at one point, did you begin to dive deeper into the realm of yoga that you're in now? You know, going from the modern approach, we were both at CU when, you know. Go Buffs! Yeah, go Buffs! <laughs> go Buffs! Let's go. Um, uh, you know, when yoga revealed itself to you in this modern approach and the modern approach to asana, and then you started to touch into something where you're exploring and have been exploring now. Mm. What happened for that shift for you to begin to have a more, like we both have very unique approaches to teaching. They're different. And I love that. And that difference began at some point mm-hmm. for you. Who inspired that and what occurred for that? And what is that to share? Like, what's your approach? What's your methodology? Sure, sure. Why do you love it so much? So I'll, I'll share that you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot these days about the, the concept of, of set and setting mm. and how that informs experience and perspective. And So for me, the set and setting where yin yoga really rooted uh, was in like the most young centric environment I've ever been in, which was living in New York City. (laughs) Super young. (laughs) Which uh, (laughs) is interesting. So coming from Boulder and really living living in the Rocky Mountains and in sanctuarious settings, uh, it didn't felt as crucial to me to have a daily meditation practice or to take retreat because daily life rhythms felt infused with some of that slow, juicy, insightful uh, dropping in. It's really easy to do that in Mm. Colorado. It's one of the reasons I consider this place home. Mm. But teaching in New York City was actually when my practice became the most potent and the dedication just strengthened so immensely because it was a survival necessity to get home to my little corner of the city, you know, get off the subway, get home and take whatever form of retreat was available. Mm. Like just to shut the city out was, was so crucial to my, uh, my life stream Mm. there that I became really, really dedicated to slowing down when I could because the world was moving so fast around me and within me while I was there. Uh, So I took some restorative yoga classes and started studying at that time with Sarah Powers, who is Mm -hmm. still my primary teacher and and really a, a root teacher for me. And that's when I recognize the essential nature of slowing down. Uh, and it was a life raft. The, yin, the pantheon of yin poses was a, the only way that I could settle in because my system was so stimulated while I was there. Mm. 
Can you speak to the space of slowing down when the world is moving so fast? Because I'm sure not only could I use some of that medicine, and also I'm sure some of our listeners could use some of that medicine. Mm-hmm. And can you speak to in your own in your own life when your life's moving fast, you have the to-do list streaming in the back of your head. And also, mind you, we don't have children. So like, I already know, like for some of my friends who are parents who are our age, they have an infinite to-do list that I can't even begin to fathom, right? You can hear about it, but you can't really understand that journey until it's that. So it's like their world's moving, perhaps, dare I say, like twice as fast as ours, maybe, maybe not, but we'll see. When you see all this distraction around you that wants to prohibit you to slow down, what do you do? in your life, and your practice to create the slow, Mm. to create the stilling. I love that. Create the slow. Uh, That's going to be a new bumper sticker. (laughs) You know, this is is the the vulnerability of of being a facilitator, Mm. I think, is, and the beauty of it is that we teach best what we ourselves struggle with. So you mentioned the the to-do list and it's something, you know, the the task-oriented pro- productivity parts of my psyche are so strong. The success-oriented, the movement-oriented, I have quite a young approach to the world actually and and don't feel don't feel satisfied at the end of the day unless I've gotten my movement in unless all my emails are checked off, unless, you know, the flight's been booked and the plans have been made and several meetings, several practices. Uh, so I myself am the poster child for over productivity and kind of being a, um, go, 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 go. Yes. And a victim <laughs> of, of that, the culture that says the more you do, the more you are and the more you win. And the more you win and the more you have, the better off you'll be. And so I understand inherently the difficulty to creating space. And the yin poses particularly because the suggestion is each posture be held for around five minutes creates these little meditation containers. Mm. It's almost like an excuse to extricate from daily life Mm. and have a pause, have a sit. And so I love the really pivy, I call them glimpse practices, Mm. these moments to drop in throughout the day, five minutes in a Baddha Konasana or, you know, 10 minutes in each side of a supine twist, just these almost anatomical environments Mm. that I can check out of daily life for a while and and actually check in instead. And I find those pivy, those glimpse practices, five, 10 minutes scattered throughout the day are effective because they're more accessible. Mm. And so I'll lean into them more rather than feeling like if I don't get my hour seated meditation in the morning and then an hour and a half of asana after that, you know, that's it for me. Mm. So the day is shot. The day is shot. Right. Exactly. So to have instead this convenience of pockets of the day to drop into a pose it feels really liberating to know that even if I've started off my day on the wrong foot or I've checked my email too early or, you know, life seeps in and particularly, as you mentioned, for parents that have children or just partners or roommates that are living on other rhythms to, to mm-hmm. know that we don't have our own at all times envelope of our own practice field that's not influenced by others around us, but still to have these momentous opportunities throughout the day, even just minute amount of time to realign to the formless dimension. Mm. 
And so I think that's been a major keystone in the sustainability of my practice is feeling like, you know, those days I'm traveling or those days I'm teaching for hours on end that I can still find five minutes here and there throughout the day to just recreate an inner interest. Mm. I love it. Such a profound response. I think that's one thing I'm I'm learning about you right now is there's no simple answer. There's this story of an answer. (laughs) There's a story of a response that takes you on a journey. And it seems like that's what you take your students on. Thank you. Well, we are storytelling species. That's how we've passed on wisdom and information for Mm -hmm. eons. And so that's something that I've really worked towards in my teaching life is taking these abstract concepts and these sexy buzzword principles like awakening and nirvana and opening and what what these concepts actually feel like from the lens of a vulnerable and perfect human and the mm. stories we experience that's what we remember more than you know the list of what the protocol of sadhana should should look like so we remember you know years after our teacher training, we remember the story our teacher told us about, yeah, when yoga was first revealed to them or their first experience crying in a pose. Mm. Like these narratives are uh, what we carry with us. Mm. I love it. Well, you know, something that you were talking about as, you know, the, the, the journey of COVID and the last two, three years yoga has had to take a shift in its face of how to practice as well, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for almost two and a half years, there was no in-studio practice. And people had to create this shift and be online and practice online. Some were already used to it. Some had already been on that bandwagon. And eventually everyone had to get on that bandwagon Mm -hmm. if they wanted to practice with their community online or their teacher online, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it creates a greater opportunity for people to be forced, should they choose to accept the the challenge, to create an at-home yoga practice, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I wonder, what's your insight on, on... what the difference is of an at-home yoga practice to practicing solely online to practicing in community, a mixture of all three. How do you take it? It is a living question. I think we're still witnessing the evolution of virtual yoga and the impact that that has on the practice field collectively and in our own individual practice. I think that one of the benefits of the online era is that it bakes in the practitioner a familiarity with going inwards, even in a mundane space Mm. when the dishwasher's going and the mailman's coming and all of the other uh, tasks of daily life are present and still having the option to access inner worlds because the ability to go to a studio and you know leave your cell phone in the locker room and unroll your mat and have the expectation that we'll have that space curated for us that was an assumption that i think most of us made that that would be available to us hmm. lifelong. Right. <laughs> and this is, this is the beauty of, for me, the, the Buddhist philosophy specifically is the, the expectations or the assumptions we make about conditions staying as they are so that we can continue feeling the way that we prefer to feel isn't guaranteed. In mm. fact, the opposite, there's a guarantee that, that those conditions won't stay the same. Mm. So, None of us expected the the jarring shift that occurred in such a quick overnight pivot. But then to meet for many of us what were non-favorable conditions, right? <laughs> Being excluded from Sangha, not having the studio space, just a heated room with a wood floor, like deep practice space available. And 
to feel this inner urgency to continue. It meant for many of us that we had to continue our awakening process despite conditions being unfavorable to that. And that's where spiritual practice is the most potent. Mm. I've heard uh, the suggestion that success on the path is a measure of how you respond when the universe does what you don't want it to do. Mm. When, not if, right? So that was an opportunity uh, to, to build a home retreat space for certain and to recommit you know, again and again, daily to recommit to the practice fields when it's the opposite of of an easeful decision. Mm. And I think that was I think that was a beautiful, beautiful opportunity. And I think it's also a a route that will hopefully keep deepening as we rejoin because there's, you know, there's just a way in which we have the opportunity to go much deeper when, when we know how to stay with ourselves in the midst of distractibility in home life. My practice at home is always met by you know a phone ringing or someone knocking at the door or the tasks of the minute that shavasana is impending the to-do list and the urgency to all of a sudden fold my laundry right like all of the excuses of moving back into the world and uh, and that's where that's where we really deepen when we stay with i think everyone can also relate to at some point in time phone asana God, we're all, I'm guilty of Gosh. it. And, you know, <laughs> Baddha Kanasana is just a perfect way to check email with the phone in between your feet. And your legs wide open and you're just yeah. like, oh, what is going on here? Right. Like- <laughs> but you know what's so interesting about that is that is an experience of the anatomy of the asana, right? The the skeletons engage. Like we've got the the stack of the bones. We've got the external rotation going, whatever it is. And to experience the impact of that versus when mindful approach is infused, to to feel the distinction between phone asana and integrated asana, Mm. even in the same pose, even if you're in the straddle forward bend for longer because you've been pulled into the Instagram ethers, you know, that, that even a short amount of time in a pose without distraction is such a deeper, more meaningful impact than, uh, than 30 minutes with, you know, an audio recording going on or something else happening. And I think that's an amazing, it's an amazing distinction between uh, bringing your full self there. Mm -hmm having parts disengaged. Wow. I love that insight. Mm -hmm. How have you made your journey work for you as a yoga teacher? How (laughs) have you made your journey enjoyable (laughs) and, you know, accessible to create a student base for yourself? You know, I I think that, you know, if um, to an extent your yoga that you teach, practice, live and serve is reaching others that are also creating a energetic exchange of financial compensation and you're paying bills you're putting light on in your house you're putting food on your table you're paying for a home over your head mm-hmm. you know what have you done that you've seen to be successful and maybe in retrospect mm, it didn't really work not doing that again mm. but that did work and applying that and developing that and allowing that to take its natural state of evolution because there's a lot of people who don't want to follow who are listening to this podcast who do don't want to follow the societal norm and there are as well and that's totally cool if you love what you do awesome love it totally support it and 
there's a lot of people out there who are teachers who want to teach or are currently teaching and trying to figure it out how to make this thing work. Mm-hmm. How are you, how have you made this work for yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I joked at the beginning of the question around it working. And I know we've spoken about this before that on the entrepreneurial path of yoga, there's no particular template or milestone mm-hmm. that shows us, okay, you're here, you've mm-hmm. made it, you're, yeah. you know, you're, you're succeeding, the path is working. And there are moments of feeling, I think this is for most of us in kind of the gig industry too, if we're hosting retreats or trainings or teaching workshops, that there are, it's not a, it's not a clear linear trajectory of, you know, selling out one retreat and then all of a sudden you've made it. So it's the question of, am I doing enough? Am I succeeding? I think that that is a burning question in a lot of entrepreneurially spirited yoga teachers. And it's certainly something that I've come back to. What's the definition of, of success for me? And that changes constantly. Uh, I knew early on as a teacher that the studio grind was not going to fly. And I also witnessed so many friends and some of my own teachers being so depleted by that system, which really is uh, locks you in to you know a, a really low ceiling of per class value, and then the kind of necessity to sack as many classes as you can into a week. Mm-hmm. And I saw that being really problematic early on and was also, I think, lucky to have stumbled into the yin teachings at a time when it was needed mm-hmm. and where the interest was just starting to awaken in the in the collective more. So I I really started, you know, at first just folding in secretly some yin poses here and there because mm-hmm. people were all coming for the power yoga practice. And where were you teaching? This was in Santa Monica. Okay. At the Bhakti Yoga Shala. Oh, great. And uh, I felt like at that time, you know, people were rushing in at four o'clock after a day of work, rushing in off the 405, stressed out to find a parking spot, stressed out to find a place in the little studio for their mat, you know, elbowing in. And go, 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 the do, do, do. And it felt like I was not being of service by then asking them all to go, go, go and chaturanga push up and one movement to the next, do, do, do. So I started slowing down and folding in kind of secretly, kind of sneakily, these yin poses and the longer held floor poses uh, through those practices and found that that was such a immediate benefit to that student body that I I quickly started offering longer, more receptive spaces where we can deepen into how to hold a pose and when to know how to come out Mm. and what to do when you're intermingling a long-held shape with the distractibility of the mind. So these inner methods of directing and and cultivating a certain type of inquiry. And so, you know, I'm sharing this because I started leading these workshops and then that moved into retreat fields and and teacher trainings after some years of that, that, that allowed me to get out of the studio game really with the the interest of the students that I had magnetized to those teachings through the studio. So I think, you know, you've got to put in your dues. You've got to create a student body that, uh, or welcome in a student body that can benefit really greatly from what you're throwing down. And then from there to host, you know, more creative rhythms of deepening into the practice life. The retreat field specifically for me felt like the greatest way to disrupt 
unhelpful patterns and create a new template for practice that students could then bring to either their home practice or to the studio. I love it. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that deeply. And I think that it's 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 interesting and cool to me that early on you realized the studio hustle was not for you. The hustle. Because right. it took me six years. And maybe it took you that long or less than that. I don't know. But it took me six years of teaching 20 class, 15 to 20 classes a week. And at that sixth year, I was like, wait, why am I doing this? <laughs> I'm actually not having fun. Right. This kind of sucks. <laughs> I'm getting paid like $35 a class. Right. And Staffing maybe them. if I were lucky at the very end, I got... I got uh, upgraded to like $60 a class. But even then, it's still not sustainable. Right. Wow. And the beauty of, of those years is just the living wisdom and the somatic ingrainment of the practice in you to, to live it and to teach it with such regularity is, I think, something that a lot of students or teachers at this stage hope that they can skate over, right? The instant gratification and, and the handstands today, yeah. um, which would be really nice. But but to have a level of dedication and commitment to teaching, some regularity to that so that it's it's so awake in you that you can take it away from the studio and inform deeper folds of practice in a much more financially sustainable way. I think that that's I think that's really juicy. And I'm, I'm just remembering now the, uh, an example of that was I, I took a yoga journal conference, a class with Rodney Yee. Mm. And he's a teacher that has taught, you know, similar sequencing and such ingrained principles for so many years that wherever he takes his teaching now it's so alive and it's so potent that it's just tangible and you know he said a cue that in that class this was years ago but it was a cue i've i've probably at that point had heard thousands of times it was something really simple i can't remember exactly what it was but it was something like and press back into downward facing dog right mm -hmm. just some something we've all heard but for whatever reason, because he had lived it and he had taught so many bodies through that, uh, that at the moment he he gave that cue and I started to press back into the pose, just this instant welling of tears, like this mm -hmm. overcome emotion because it, it it was such a transmission from him. It was underneath the words. It was the the decades that he had done that exact movement embodied right totally and that's about yeah mm. and so for the person who's feeling this conversation and the flow of where we're going and let's say that they're like i want i want to be leading retreats and trainings or x y and z they don't want to do the studio hustle so this question is definitely focused to the teacher of the listening audience right now what would you say is three one two or three few steps best next best steps mm. to help someone move in that direction yeah knowing that it doesn't happen overnight yes right for sure so i'll i'll try to succinctly share maybe like a two-step process great uh, that I find, and there's an interesting distinction between different ways of moving into your yoga. So the first step I would say is like what we call horizontal integration. When early on in the path, you are sampling the buffet of wisdom teachings and disciplines. And there's such an array now, like you can do goat yoga, right? Like that's, THC yoga, there's acro yoga, there's yin yoga, uh, you know, all of the different, all of the different disciplines that have taken root today. So that horizontal exploration early on in practice, feeling different teachers, understanding what turns you on, what turns you off, what your 
soul is drawn towards, what sparks you, uh, what ignites uh, impassioned interest. That sampling horizontally early on in the path, I think, is really essential to get as much exposure to teaching styles and different avenues of evolution that are available. But at a certain point in practice, the bedrock of deepening comes through not horizontal integration, but vertical, where you go deeper in with a similar style or process and it becomes a living study. So the vertical integration of moving towards a particular niche or practice style or lineage that stirs you and dedicating yourself fully for some years at least to that lineage Mm. you know for me it was yin because i found that as a necessary niche and it also helped move me away from competing with the 200 hour vinyasa teacher trainings that were just overly plentiful popping off popping off and because i felt a deeper home base with yin early on i knew that following that line of inquiry for years would give me the the entrainment needed to put me on my own unique path and to commit to a teacher that awakens in you constantly a living wonder a deeper inquiry the curiosity and not to bow out of that when the teachings don't feel like they're stirring you Mm. or eliciting some deep awakening because again it's the returning to the same wisdom discipline again and again with a sense of commitment and discipline i think that will will deepen our ability to stay with ourselves and that's what i hope to offer any of my students is that own inner capacity to be with. So we can't train that when we stay horizontally integrating and moving from, you know, this lights me up today, so I'm going to do this, but it's not really feeling of interest today, so I'm going to try something else. It's it's training up the distractibility of the monkey mind mm. and, um, and seeking that instant gratification. Mm. So sample it all. And then lean into what feels most alive. Most alive. Yeah, I feel yeah. that. I really deeply feel that to find a teacher, an approach, a, a, a practice, and stick with it and commit yourself to it and right. allow that to steep yourself into it. Yeah, I really, I really deeply resonate with that. I think those are great key tools. Thanks. So, what's, what's on the next? 12 months for you in, mm. in your yoga and your offerings. Mm. So that's, this actually brings me back to a, a question you asked earlier about what didn't work on the path oh, great. to success. <laughs> oh, great. You know, the w- once I started leading teacher trainings and retreats with a lot of regularity, the productivity part that we spoke about earlier <laughs> had a really um, front, she had a front seat mm. in directing my work life and my teaching life. And so for a long time, I was leading trainings once a month, you know, something on the calendar to offer publicly mm-hmm. at once a month, whether it was a retreat or a workshop. So just stacking like that. And of course, COVID shifted that and realizing that rather than having a, a teacher training every month where, you know, maybe I could pull in 20 students in May and, you know, 30 in June and, Rather than that, that I could galvanize the calendar into some really potent little portals of practice throughout the year that felt seasonally appropriate and uh, opportunities to go in deeper with a lot of space in between. Mm. And so this next 12 months, you'll see a lot less on my calendar, Mm. which I'm so excited about because what is there is. the the arsenal of the greatest tools I've cultivated so far in the attempt to live a life in awareness. Yeah. So there are several 
retreats and trainings throughout the the rest of 2022 and into 2023 that I've pared back the the frill and the fray and, and gotten to the essential teachings that I think have been the most potent in their impact on my practice. So they are a little bit more few and far between and uh, and I'm really looking forward to that space. I love it. Amazing. <laughs> Where's home base? Like how can people find you if they want to practice with you live or online? Mm-hmm. Are there access points there for people? Yes. So I'm between Boulder, Colorado and Topanga, California, yeah. doing the the dual citizenship of yeah. Colorado, California. <laughs> so I, I offer a lot in in both of those states and and also worldwide throughout the year. Uh, what I'm really leaning into is the 20 hour deepening intensive, these long weekend retreats or trainings, typically Thursday evening through Sunday afternoon, because I think that it's a way to make accessible retreat space in a way that most of us that can't commit to, you know, three months in Bali can still drink in. So you'll notice a lot of those um, throughout the country in 2023 on my calendars, these 20 hour immersions. Uh, I also offer virtual because we're in that world now. now. So you can find that on my website. There are practice bundles and virtual teacher trainings on kaliderga.yoga.com. Awesome. We'll definitely highlight that. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been so amazing. (laughs) And and yeah, one, one final question. What would be one golden nugget that you want to leave the listeners with as they move forward on their path? Mm. Whatever that nugget is. What is it? I would love to share what's, what's coming up right now is a, a poem that I recite to myself every morning. Mm. I have a little uh, traveling altar and the central piece to that display is a poem that, you know, we talk about this returning to practice and it's what I read when I don't feel motivated mm. and when I don't want to sit. And when I don't want to practice to lean into to ancient teachings that are deeper and beyond my own ability to commit mm. and to lean into that instead. So it's a poem that was written in the 1300s mm. and author unknown, but the fact that it's lived this long, I feel like there must be something there. <laughs> so It's called This Precious Human Life. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. In this life, you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore recall your inspiration and your aspiration and resolve to make use of every day and every night to realize them. Mm. Wow, so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your heart wisdom and your life wisdom, your spirit with myself coming here in presence and with the Yoga Revealed community. And thank you to our amazing listeners. We love you so much. By the time you have listened to this, know that Seven Day Yoga Reset is out and the 100 Days of Yoga is also out. Please check the links below and follow Kali on Instagram. Connect with her. Send her a message. Let her know what you thought about this conversation. I know that it would light her world up and it lights mine up to know that you're a part of our community. From our hearts to yours, namaste. Thank you so much, Yoga Revealed Podcast, for listening, tuning in, and dropping in. This is Alec Vishal Rubin, and if you found as much value from Kali as I did, please be sure to follow her on social media, Kali underscore Durga, and check out her website, Kali Durga Yoga, for upcoming offerings, trainings, and retreats. 
And in closing, please be sure to check out Yoga Revealed's seven-day yoga reset as an opportunity to reignite and establish your yoga practice with introductory classes in peaceful meditations that are perfect for the beginner and also great for the experienced yoga teacher and practitioner. Again, you can pay what you want from as low as $1 and stay tuned for incredible interviews coming soon to you and incredible offerings from the Yoga Revealed teachers and community. My friends, thank you. We will see you next time and remember that you make a difference every single day. From my heart to yours, love life. Namaste. Peace. everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L. D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.